0: church? How you doing? Anybody tired? Have to stay up all night listening to your neighbor's uh, fireworks going off, <laughs> right? Their epic show of fireworks. Hey, seriously, happy 4th of July. What, a, what better way to spend our freedom than here, Alright, Celebrating Jesus, the one who gave us our ultimate freedom, right? Amen. Thanks for being here with us in person or online. Hey, have you ever tried reverse psychology on someone, yep. especially with your kids? Have you ever tried getting them to do what you want them to do by telling them the opposite of what you want them to do? Even trying to explain that is a little confusing, but we do this all the time. We kind of joke that it works. So Let me give you a few examples, reverse psychology. Son, don't, don't clean your room. I think it's great that I get to step all over the Legos every time. I go in your room. What? Right. What's my hope? That he'll clean his room. What about this one? Honey, please don't help me with the laundry. I really like it when you make me do it all by myself. <laughs> I feel like maybe she's trying to communicate something there. Right? What about this one? Sure, honey, go ahead and date any boy you want. I'm sure they all have great intentions. Our goal is not to get her to date every boy. It's to get her not to date any boy, but somehow we think saying the opposite will, will make her want to do that, right? And then what about, this one's for you this morning. Hey, you know what? Just, just go ahead and go to sleep. It's fine. I'd rather you not listen this morning, right? Now, but well, remember, that's reverse psychology. I don't want you to actually do that. I want you to do the opposite of that. A little confusing, isn't it? Why do we ever think that telling someone the opposite would get them to do what we really want them to do? And yet we do it all the time, especially with kids. And it's kind of awkward. And I don't know about you, but I'm really glad God doesn't work in the reverse psychology field. I'm glad the Bible is not like a book of reverse psychology where we have to try to figure out what God's telling us by figuring out what he's not telling us. How confusing would that be? You know, he's pretty direct. God is pretty straightforward in his word. It's usually on our end that we get confused. Or we try to interpret in a certain way that will let us maybe get around what God is saying or we try to confuse terms or, or definitions. and Yeah, God's pretty direct most of the time. And I think the Ten Commandments are a great example of that. God spells out pretty clearly what he wants his people to do and what he wants them not to do. So let's look at an example. Let's look at Exodus twenty seventeen. God says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Don't do this. Don't covet. All right, there's no reverse psychology here. We get a little bogged down sometimes and like, well, who is my neighbor, God? What did you really mean when you said neighbor? If you've been around the church long enough, I think we've done a good job answering that's everyone, right? We don't get to narrow in our neighbor to like one person within a mile distance. It's everyone. We try to confuse it, but God's pretty straightforward here. And so we're going to continue this morning. This is the command that we're going to unpack. We're going to look at what it means to covet, what it means not to covet. And we're continuing in this series. And last week, Corey looked at the command of not lying or not bearing false witness. That's just not language we use much anymore. So talk about not lying and how we can so often, how we can so often, uh, think that one command is less important than another, right? That, That somehow not lying or not coveting doesn't rank with as much importance as not murdering. It would seem if I was going to choose one thing to sin, I would choose to covet versus not murder. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? That all the commands have equal importance. And for us to think that any of them is minor to another one is really a misunderstanding of the commandments themselves. right? What were the purpose of the commands so that we could love God and others, we could better love God and love others. In scripture, Jesus is confronted by some religious leaders and they say, hey, which commandment should we really follow? Which one's the most important? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and prophets hang on those two commands. Right? He's saying that that loving God and loving others is the purpose of the commands, and it's really important that we understand how coveting directly affects that plan. Right, God says, Hey, I want you to love me and love others, and coveting actually strikes at both of those. Because here's the bottom line when it comes to coveting. Coveting cheapens God's blessings and hurts others. That's the main point today. If you want to write that down or take a picture, we're going to unpack that this morning. The coveting cheapens God's blessings. And it hurts other people. And I want to look at how. How does that happen? And why? I think the best way maybe to illustrate how coveting cheapens God's blessings and hurts others is for me to show you a picture. I say a picture is worth a thousand words. This is a great picture of coveting. It's a great picture of coveting. Right? This little boy, he's got a popsicle. It looks like a decent popsicle. But his sister, I'm assuming his sister, has got a really sweet looking ice cream cone. And you can see in his eyes, you can kind of read his thoughts. Because I've got young children, I've got a feeling I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, I hate my popsicle. I don't just like her ice cream, I hate my popsicle. And if you were to really ask him, he might even say he hates his sister. <laughs> because she got something better than what he got. And, and if we were to play this out, I bet it's very likely he's going to try to take that ice cream from his sister. And we know where that's going to lead. Lots of tears, some fighting, some spankings when you get home. It's going to be a mess. But the point, he misses the point. He's got a popsicle that he probably chose. He just didn't realize his sister was going to choose something maybe better. And, and so this picture, I think, perfectly, perfectly illustrates what coveting is. Here's, here's a definition for coveting. A desire or a longing for something you don't or can't have, which causes sinful thinking or acting. Right? It's a desire, a longing for something you don't or can't have, which causes sinful thinking or acting. I want you to pay close attention to the last part of this statement, because it's important. A desire or a longing in itself is not sinful. We all desire uh, to achieve something or to earn something. We long for things, and those in and of themselves are not sinful. We cross the line into coveting when we start to think sinfully, when we start to hate what we have or wish it better. And so then we start thinking and acting sinfully. Let's bring that picture back up. All right, let's say this little boy asked his parents for that exact same ice cream. Mom, dad, can I have this ice cream? He wouldn't be coveting, right? If he said, hey, dad, I've got a couple of dollars. Can you match me? And we can buy that same ice cream he wouldn't be coveting. If he went home and he saved all his money for as long as he could to afford the ice cream, he said, I want to go back to that ice cream shop and buy that exact, that exact ice cream, he wouldn't be coveting. Actually, we would say that he is goal-oriented. We would say he's got a goal. He wants to buy that ice cream. In fact, if he asked his sister to share, he wouldn't be coveting. He's going to cross the line into coveting when he tries to take it from his sister. Or he thinks that he has somehow been slighted because he doesn't have what is as good as hers. It reminds me of uh, when I was in college. My wife and I got married uh, when we were 19. And to motivate ourselves, we would drive through nice neighborhoods. And it like motivated us to work hard. We would like, say, man, it'd be nice one day to, to live here or there or to, to have a house like that. And we didn't covet it. We didn't say, oh man, I hate the house we have. We should have that. We were grateful for what we have. But it was like we would go on date night and we'd go get something to eat and then we would drive through neighborhoods and we just used it to motivate ourselves, to keep us in school and to keep us working hard, a goal to strive for. I don't think that was coveting. Now, had we crossed the line and started to hate the blessings that God had given us and resent the people who owned those homes, maybe then we would have crossed the line into coveting because coveting cheapens God's blessings and it hurts others. You know, probably the story in scripture that best illustrates coveting is the story of King David. You know, if there was ever a man who didn't need to covet, I think it would be a king, wouldn't you? I mean, what could a king covet? They have everything. They have the wealth, they have the people, they control the law. I mean, a king has everything. You wouldn't think they would covet. And yet that's not David's story, is it? God blessed David tremendously, protected him in battle, and led him through victory. And he gives God credit for that. But it doesn't take long after he becomes king to take his eyes off the Lord and put them on a young woman whose name was Bathsheba. Right? He, he caught. He, he didn't catch. He saw her bathing one one evening on a rooftop. And there's a lot to that story that we should unpack about why she's on a rooftop, why her name was Bath, and she was. It's it's weird, but. Right, there's, there's something in there. But anyways, right? he sees this young woman, and he wants her. And he sends his people to go get her and bring her to his palace. And here's, here's the odd part. There was no shortage of women in David's life. He had multiple wives. Not that that was okay, that's just what happened. And there were concubines. He didn't have a shortage of women. What was it about this woman that led him to that action? It's that he wanted what he couldn't have. He coveted what he couldn't have. He somehow cheapened God's blessing by thinking that he needed more. And he ended up hurting others. Right? He ended up uh, having an, an affair with her. She became pregnant. And then to cover it up, he had her husband killed, which was also one of his close friends. So what preceded lying, cheating, and murder? Coveting. It started with one act of coveting, where he saw her and he wanted something he couldn't have. And that led to all sorts of corruption. You see, in the Bible, it talks a lot about fruit. I don't know if, if you've read through much of the Bible, then you're going to come across this language about fruit. And, and Jesus compares a lot of things to fruit. And he says, you know, hey, you'll, you'll know a tree is good if it produces good fruit. You'll know a tree is bad if it produces good bad fruit. The tree of coveting will always produce rotten fruit. Coveting will never produce good fruit. It will always be rotten. Here's some things that coveting will always produce. It will produce debt. It will produce adultery and bitterness and theft and guilt and shame, anger, mistrust, Broken relationships, overworking, we could make a list go on and on and on about the negative effects of coveting, the bad fruit that grows from the tree of coveting. I mean, just think about it. How many credit cards have been maxed out, not out of a need for something, but out of a desire to have more than what you currently have? How many people have spent years paying off tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt? That they ran out because they didn't think they had enough. And the God of Visa was going to provide more for them than the God of heaven. I mean, just think about that. Think about how many marriages have been wrecked because someone wanted something else. Something new. Something adventurous. And they went out and coveted. All right, how many men have abandoned their families. They might physically be there, but they're not mentally or socially or emotionally there because they're always working. Because that's where they're gonna find their identity and their money and their stature because they're coveting what some other man has. How many people walk around angry and bitter that others have more than they do? How much guilt and shame exist because of poor decisions made due to coveting. How many late night scrolls through Facebook leave people feeling depressed as they stare through a filtered window into the lives of others who seemingly have perfect lives and way more stuff than we do. There's nothing good that comes out of coveting. It will lead to sinful thinking and acting. It corrupts us and it's unavoidable. It will always produce bad fruit, just like the little boy coveting his sister's ice cream, or David coveting another woman. It won't end well. It won't end well. It'll breed corruption. And part of that is because coveting is rooted in something. Coveting is rooted in scarcity. And you may know what that word means, but just a little economics lesson here, so we're all on the same page. uh, Scarcity is the state of being scarce. I thought you weren't allowed to use The word in its own definition, right? Thanksdictionary.com. The state of being scarce or in short supply or a shortage. That's the definition of scarcity. You know, we all experienced this recently in the great toilet paper rush of 2020. You remember that? Remember that scarcity moment, right? When you went to the store and there were just aisles empty. I think that's gonna go down in history books. You had the gold rush of 1849. I think you're gonna have the toilet paper rush of 2020. People, you walk in the store and you couldn't find toilet paper. You were buying napkins, which is awkward. And so there was just this scarcity. But here's the, here's the reality of that story. Did you know there was never a lack of toilet paper? There was never a shortage in the production of toilet paper. What had happened was people became so fearful that there might be a shortage that they made very impulsive decisions and bought a massive amount. Some of you might still be using the toilet paper you bought last year. I don't know, but that's what scarcity does. When you are afraid that you're going to run out of something or that there's not enough of something, you will make decisions based out of fear rather than faith. And so toilet paper is just an example of that. Now you go into the store and they got the signs that say limit per two or limit two per customer. That's really just a nice way of saying, hey, that's enough. You don't need to buy any more than this. That'll do. And we tend to do that with more than just toilet paper, don't we? We run around taking out loans that we know we can't afford, buying houses that will take us 30 or 40 years to pay off, buying clothes that we don't necessarily need. This rat race of life, somebody pulls up next to you at the stoplight and they're driving a nicer car than you, so you got to go out and take out a big Auto loan so that you can have the same car as them, which just created debt. And so we do that with more than just toilet paper. We operate a lot of times out of fear rather than faith, and that's where coveting is rooted. Coveting is rooted in scarcity. It's rooted in scarcity. But but here's the here's the irony. We are children of God. Yes. If you have accepted Jesus, you are a child of God. How could the child of God, how could children of God live in scarcity? God spoke out the stars. He spoke and things came to be. God is in control of all things. He owns all things. He has treasures beyond our imaginations, and yet somehow we still think there's not enough. But God doesn't operate out of scarcity, God operates in abundance. Nothing is scarce in Christ. There's only abundant life in Christ. And so it's, it's, it's ironic that we live that way. I think Jesus saw this. He records this about worry, or he, he says this about worry. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? I mean, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? I mean, look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, the son of David, in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Isn't that true? Today's trouble is enough for today. Coveting represents a scarcity mindset. You might experience this tonight when you're setting off your Walmart super pack of fireworks and your neighbor's launching his $10,000 fireworks show. You might be prone to covet. I would say don't covet, enjoy. Enjoy his blessings. Enjoy the fact that he could afford that firework show and you get to benefit from it. Amen? And so coveting is rooted in scarcity. It's not that you don't have enough. He just happens to have more fireworks. But when we see the world through the lens of there's not enough, it corrupts us. Uh, One psychologist put it this way. She was talking about a scarcity mindset. She said, when we have a scarcity mindset, we look at the world from a place of fear and inadequacy instead of hope and faith. I'm going to read that one more time. When we have a scarcity mindset, we look at the world from a place of fear and inadequacy instead of hope and faith. And God instructs us basically in this command to trust him. He says, hey, don't don't covet what other people have. Trust that what I provide will be abundant and it will be enough. Think about the original people who heard this command. So God's people who were in the desert and they received these commands, these, these instructions from a loving father, they had just come out of slavery. They had spent, their, their generations had spent time in slavery and they could only take with them what they could carry out of Egypt. And so I bet they were terrified. They didn't know where their source of food was going to come from. They didn't know what was going to happen. What did God end up doing? He ended up raining food from heaven every day. And they had more than enough. They couldn't even store it all. It would go to waste. And he's telling them, hey, don't covet. As you go through the desert, as time goes on, some people are going to prosper more than others. And you're gonna come in, you're gonna bump into other nations and other people who are gonna seemingly have way more than you do. Don't covet that. Don't hate them for it. Trust that I've got you. I think he wants the same for us today, to trust that he's got us, not to worry about clothes or food or keeping up with that person or wanting what somebody else has, but to trust that he is a God of abundance and will give for all of our needs. I think he wants that same for us today. He's calling us to be content with what we have, to have an abundance mindset. I want to juxtapose with you for a moment. Scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset and see where you you fall on this spectrum. You ready? So let's look at a couple of these. The first statement is a scarcity mindset and the second is abundance thinking. A scarcity mindset sounds like this. If only I had this job, that wife, this car, this house, this, this, this. If If only I had, if only I had, then I would be happy. That's scarcity. There's not enough, and I wish I had more. Abundance mindset says, you know what? It would be nice to have this or that, but I do have this. I may not have this fancy house or this brand new car or the greatest ice cream cone, but I do have a popsicle. I do have something. I do have some things. I've got a family. Maybe I've got a home. You see the difference. This is rooted in fear that there's a scarcity of resources and that God's not capable of producing more. And this is a position of faith that God will always provide and already has. What about this one? Here's scarcity mindset. How come I can't have and fill in the blank. You ever caught yourself thinking how come I can't have that thing? How come they get to go on that nice vacation and I can't? How come, how come they get to have these things and I don't? See where it's fear-based. Whereas this is say, so, you know what? I might not have the newest thing, the nicest home, this or that. I, I may not have those things. But I do have this fear versus faith, gratefulness the things that we do have. Here's another scarcity mindset. Why did they get this, but I only got that? This one I think happens a lot, right? We see other people are like, how come they got all the nice things? They're not even Christians. They're not even good people. And yet somehow they seem to have more than I do. That doesn't seem fair. Why did they as if they is some giant group out to hurt everybody? How come they got that? And I only get this little thing scarcity. It's a belief that what you have is not enough and that God hasn't provided what you need versus an abundant mindset. will say, you know what? Good for them. Good for them. I'm glad my neighbor can spend that much on fireworks and I get to enjoy. Good for them. Do you see the difference? And so I want to ask you, which mindset do you find yourself operating out of the majority of the time. We're all sinful people. We're going to be drawn toward coveting. It's just going to be our natural condition. But which one do you find yourself operating out of the majority of the time? Are you, are you operating out of scarcity? Out of fear that there's not enough and so you're running around always trying to get more so that you don't feel inadequate? Or are you content? Not, I'm not saying we should be lazy and not work hard. Remember, coveting is a desire for something we can't have that leads to sinful thinking or acting. Which mindset do you tend to operate out of? And it'll tell you a lot about maybe where your heart is in relation to coveting. And that's great information, right? I mean, I just basically unpacked what coveting is for you. I said, hey, okay, here's what coveting is. Here's what it isn't. But what are you going to do with that? What's gonna change in your life based on what we just heard, right? What are you gonna, what are you gonna do with that knowledge? And there was a, a young guy named Timothy who's an up-and-coming preacher uh, in the New Testament days and he had a mentor named Paul. And Paul would write him letters and say, hey, you should do this, you should avoid this, you should consider this. And, and I found it interesting, something that he advised uh, Timothy on. Let's, let's look at this. And Timothy, Paul says this. now. Hey, Timothy, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. That's a key word, contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, there's there's an abundance mindset. If I've got food, I'm good. But those who desire, there's another key word, to be rich fall into temptation, this desire that will lead to some sort of sinful thinking or acting. They will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, that's an interesting word, reminds me of the picture of the popsicle and the ice cream, the craving. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O oh man of God, flee these things. All right, Paul is telling this young man, I think he's giving him some insight into what's gonna happen as he gets older. You're gonna be prone to covet and want more than you have, but trust that God will provide. If you've got food and clothing, then you can be content. And here, here's what Paul's really saying to Timothy. He's saying, hey, you know what? Instead of pursuing what we don't have, Let's pursue the things we can have. We spend a lot of time in life pursuing the things that we know we're probably never going to get. But there's a whole lot of things in life that have a limit, no limit to it, that are limitless, that we can always be attaining more of. Paul said it this way in another passage, passage to another church. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us walk and step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. The fruit of the Spirit is in abundance. There's no shortage of supply of that. But we can only pursue those things in relationship with Jesus. You know where you will try to find love and joy and peace and patience and all those things outside of Christ? You'll try to find them in possessions or other people. But we'll always find the possessions and people will fail. Jesus won't. And so it's only in a relationship with Jesus that we can have the strength not to covet, that we can begin to pursue good fruit. There is no law against growing in love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against those things. We can always strive for more. Uh, Let me tell you a story about a young guy that I think really captures uh, the essence of what we're talking about. I wanna uh, tell you about Nick. Some of you may know Nick's story. But Nick is a young guy who's born in the early 80s in Australia. And Nick travels the world, he's an evangelist, he, he's spoken in prisons, he's spoken in third world countries, he's spoken in wealthy countries. He's a great speaker and man of God. But what you may not know about Nick is that he was actually born without arms and legs. Nick has no limbs. He was born with a rare disorder which means he has no limbs. And in his autobiography, he records when he was 10 years old that he tried to commit suicide, but failed because he he didn't have hands to go through with it. Imagine that situation. And so from 10 years old, he begins to grow. His dad was actually a minister. So he went to church regularly and he always wished for arms and legs. In fact, he said uh, that he, they had a prayer night one night where him and some friends, they gathered and they prayed for hours that God would give him arms and legs. And clearly God never delivered on that. Maybe he had something else in mind. So Nick falls in love with Jesus when he's a, a young man, when he's a teenager. He gets a hold of some scriptures that change his life. And he begins to pursue joy and peace and patience and kindness, the fruits of the Spirit in his relationship with Jesus. And this is Nick today. He's married. He's got four kids. Beautiful family. But I wonder, could God have used Nick's heart to change lives if he had spent his entire life coveting someone else's arms and legs? Could God have used Nick in the way that he has if he had instead spent his whole life coveting what he couldn't and probably would never have? In fact, Nick in his autobiography says that he got to become the hands and feet of Jesus around the world. And it wasn't by God giving him what he wanted. It was by God giving him what he needed. Right, he learned to pursue the fruit of the spirit and not covet what everyone else had, but be trustful, be trusting in Jesus, that he's got enough. And so I hope that's true for us this morning. I hope we can learn to trust that God's got us, that he will provide enough, that we don't have to run around trying to accumulate more things or more people or more possessions to try and, and accomplish something. That God has got us. and He will provide everything that we need coveting will only cheapen god's blessings and hurt others because it's rooted in scarcity and will breed corruption but jesus will produce good fruit in your life he will give you a life abundant let's pray god thank you for this day thank you for the freedom that we have to gather here and to worship we have ultimate freedom because you erased our sin debt. We're all sinful people. We've all coveted. So, therefore, we're unworthy of heaven. And yet, you look down on us in love and compassion and with grace rather than harshness and judgment. You sent your son. And Jesus, you gave up your life. You laid down your life so that we could live ours. Help us not to covet. Help us not to corrupt our lives and to hurt other people. Give us the strength to walk with you daily and to pursue the good fruit of life. Help us to pursue love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And those come through a relationship with you. And so I pray if there's anyone in here this morning or online who doesn't have that relationship, They wouldn't let this day expire without coming to know you more. Thank you for loving us and thank you for just speaking to us directly in your word and giving us clear instruction on what we should and shouldn't do in this life to honor you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.